Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. If you've ever seen the film Glen Gary, Glen Ross, you remember the scene uh, where Alec Baldwin arrives in and basically tells the, the lads in the office what's up when it comes to selling. Uh, some of them are struggling, some of them uh, are not doing too well and this guy Alec Baldwin has been parachuted in basically to make sure that the, the targets are hit and he could not be more of an alpha male really and he gives a big long speech you know, the big brass balls and all that kind of stuff but he he gets a chalkboard and he writes ABC always be closing like that's his, his kind of mantra the whole time no matter what you're doing Every, every single transaction with a customer always be closing it's always trying to move them towards making sure that you are getting them to sign on the line that is dotted as he says in the film but in the book Dan Pink's book To Sell as Human he has a different ABC and it kind of comes back to one of the things we talked about in part one where there is not information asymmetry as in all the information about a particular product or service does not lie with the salesperson anymore there's information parity everyone pretty much has access to the same information whether it's buying a used car uh, signing up to a particular piece of software as a service whatever it's going to be generally people have access to the exact same type of information so his abc in the book to sell as human is attunement buoyancy and clarity so part two of this mini-series, this uh, series of three, we're going to talk about the the new ABC, Attunement, Buoyancy and Clarity. Now Attunement is essentially what would have been called rapport back in the day, so just kind of you know, actively listening and making sure you're, you're reading all the signals correctly. But there's a bit more of a nuance to it in, in this book, which is uh, I actually think is quite brilliant the way he talks about it. B then is about buoyancy. And really, it, that's... I guess it's about he talks about an ocean of uh, negative not not an ocean of negativity an o- an ocean of no's right? as in everyone's going to say no to you like you have to you have to wade through all the people who are going to knock you back to get to that yes and it's about having the buoyancy the way I used to think about it when I was working in sales a long time ago is I would I would think about it from an analytical point of view I would remove emotion from the situation and I'd make sure that I was being analytical in what I was doing. I'd make sure that I was not taking offense when somebody said no. I'd be curious about why they said no. Why did they say no? Is it the wrong time of day? Did I approach them wrong? Did I not ask enough questions? Or are they just purely just not interested in what I was selling? And sometimes you'd, you'd come to an answer, sometimes you wouldn't. But that's ultimately what he's talking about in this book here is, is buoyancy, is to make sure that you're not put off by people saying no. There's a great guy uh, i can't remember what his name is now but he i remember reading about it before that the way he would train his salespeople would be to collect as many no's as you could so don't be afraid of the no right a lot of the time when people are training people in sales they'll say you have to get them to say yes loads of times they call it the yes ladder or whatever they want to call it you don't get people up that yes ladder the more they say yes the better which is all well and good but sometimes somebody is just not even 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 if somebody is a prospect or a lead, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to convert into a sale. So he talks about making sure this is the other guy I can't remember his name now, like I said, but he talks about collecting all, as many no's as you can. 
So the worst thing that can ever happen in sales, I think, is when somebody says, I'll think about it or, you know, uh, maybe maybe give me a call back. And maybe is actually worse than a no. Right? You prefer somebody just to tell me, is, is, this, is this a lost cause? Is, is this like something that you're just purely not interested in? I'd prefer you to tell me no and to, you know, then to give me a maybe, which is essentially just a long no. Right? Or what some people call an Irish no, I think is what they call it, like a, a long maybe, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. You want to get people to say no as much as possible. But that's what this second part is about, this buoyancy. And the third part then is clarity. So the, the ABC, in, in back to the book now, he talks about C being clarity. So when it comes to clarity, what he's talking about there is making sure that, that you're clear about the solution that you're offering, but ensuring that it's the solution to a problem that your potential customer has. So rather than like it's like any good salesperson doesn't doesn't just talk 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 about the benefits and, the, and the, the, the features and the benefits and all that kind of stuff you should be listening you should be you should be listening more than you're talking and only interjecting when when you're when you're either looking for clarity or you're talking about how your solution is fits their problem if that makes sense in this section as well he also talks about uh, framing things so if you've ever studied nlp or neuro-linguistic programming as it's called they talk a lot about framing things to to refocus something for somebody, um, which we'll talk about when we get to it. And the final thing he talks about is to is to give people an off ramp or, or allow them to find the off ramp to the destination. And in layman's terms, I guess that's what you would call the call to action, right? What do you actually want somebody to do? What is the next step for somebody to take when it comes? Say you're say you're trying to sell somebody a uh, a service, um, a product, it doesn't actually matter what it is, what's your, what doesn't, I don't need to give an example. But if you're trying to sell something to somebody, they're not necessarily going to hand you money there and then, but what you need to do is to get them to take the next step, to show them the off-ramp to the destination. And that's what he's talking about in this book, To Sell as Human. Uh, as part of, of your, your job as a salesperson is to give people the next step. It's actually... And of course, like I've said many times already, this book isn't just about sales. It isn't just about um, sales in the traditional sense. It's about more than that. It's about moving people. And that's what we said, what we talked about in part one, is that we're all in the moving business, right? If you want to make sure that people arrive to a meeting on time or when the meeting is actually concluded, that everybody knows what they're supposed to do, that you can motivate people and persuade people to take the action that they're supposed to take. And one of the things that you will do to allow that to happen is have clarity on what the next steps are. So anytime I run a meeting, I'd always say, okay, does everyone know what they're doing? So what are you doing? Right? And what's she going to do next? And what are you going to do next? So you go around the table and make sure that everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And I don't mean do it like in a headmastery kind of way, but I mean do it in a way that's, okay, is everybody actually clear what the purpose of this meeting was and what the next steps are for everybody? Okay, you're going to do those four things, you're going to do those things, and blah, 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 blah. And then that actually leaves people in, in a good frame of mind then because they leave a meeting thinking, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what my next steps are. Anyway, back to the, to the beginning of the chapter where he talks about attunement. And like I said, this is what some people might call building rapport, but there is a little bit more to it than that. He talks about an experiment where you get, um, this is, I, I don't know if this is meant to be done with a permanent marker or not, but you you get a marker and you draw a capital E on your own forehead. And in this particular experiment, it's a, it's a famous experiment, what you're looking for is to understand, if, I, if me and you are standing in a room together and I say, here's a marker, draw the letter E on your forehead. 
what is interesting is to see if you draw the E in uh, in mirror so that in your own mind's eye you'd be able to read it or do you write it the other way around that it would be the wrong way for you so that I can read it and he says that depending on what way somebody writes this letter it's a window into his or her mind and really what this will tell you as well as is what it tells you about what's in somebody's mind is their perspective do you attune yourself with others and I guess another way of, of, of perhaps explaining is to use empathy, which actually, now that I think about it, he does get, in, get into in the book as well, um, about how it's uh, perspective taking or, or disattunement. It isn't just about um, the practical side of things. It's, there's an emotional element to it as well, which we'll get to. But he breaks it down into uh, three principles, uh, somebody's ability to attune themselves with others. He says the first thing to do is to increase your power by reducing it. So I'm actually going to read a section from the book here, just because rather than me trying to explain it, um, it's probably just easier for just read it. And so this is directly from the book, and it's what he's talking about here is um, a, a way to understand how how the more power you have, or the more, more power you believe you have, the more it skewers your ability to to use your your attunement or to to understand something from somebody else's perspective. Imagine that you and your colleague Maria go out to a fancy restaurant that's been recommended by Maria's friend Ken. The experience is awful. The food stinks, the service is worse. The following day, Maria sends Ken an email that says only about the restaurant. It was marvellous, just marvellous. How do you think Ken will interpret the comment? Will he consider the email sincere or sarcastic? Think about it for a moment before reading further. In a related experiment, uh, they used a version of this scenario to examine power and perspective taking from another angle and found results similar to what they uncovered with the e-test. Participants with a high power generally believed that Ken found the email sarcastic. Those with low power predicted he found it sincere. So who's correct? The chances are it's the low power group. Remember, Ken had no idea what happened at the dinner. Unless Maria is chronically a sarcastic person, of which there's no evidence in the experiment, Ken has no reason to suspect insincerity on the part of his friend. To conclude that he inferred sarcasm in Maria's email depends on privileged background knowledge that Ken doesn't have. So what the researchers then, basically this is me talking again now, what the researchers then concluded was that the uh, power leads individuals to anchor their, their own vantage point and it's insufficiently uh, tailored or it's insufficiently uh, adjusted to other people's perspective. So there's an inverse relationship between power and perspective taking. So basically the conclusion from that is that the ability to move people as in to persuade or to, to sell something to them or to influence them, it depends on powers in inverse right so understanding another person's perspective and getting inside their own head and seeing the world through his or her eyes so that's a really interesting way to think about how you attune yourself with others if you think you know everything there is to know about your product or even worse you think you know everything there is to know about your potential client or your potential customer there's an imbalance of power there in your own head and there's less chance of you being able to see the situation from the other person's point of view Let's say you're selling insurance, for example, and you meet a potential client or potential customer, and they are 
mid fifties, um, you know, earning sixty five thousand a year. I don't know, and they are uh, slightly overweight, maybe, or you know, they're working in middle management. What there may be some criteria that makes you think oh, I've met this person a million times before. So now, what's happened in your head is you've you've gone in here thinking I know how to sell to this guy, and that that imbalance of power, that that high power that you believe you have in the situation, and the high power being that you know everything there is to know, it's going to reduce your ability to attune with that person. So you have to assume, even though you might have met people that are a million a million people just like this, you have to you have to lower your understanding of the other person because you've only just met them. And that's what allows you to go into a sales conversation or a, a moving conversation, whatever you want to call it, in a way that will allow attunement to happen, as in it'll allow people, allow you to see the situation from the other person's point of view. And it'll naturally lead to you being able to ask better, more leading questions. The second principle then of attunement, he says, is to use your head as much as your heart. Perspective take, this, this is a quote from the book now, perspective taking is a cognitive capacity. It's mostly about thinking. Empathy is an emotional response. It's mostly about feeling. But the two of them are crucial. And this is where it becomes slightly hazy, where it becomes difficult to teach this to somebody, well, 80% of the time you should use your head and 20% of the time you should use your heart. It doesn't necessarily work like that because the, the humans are messy and they're full of contradictions. And you can ask somebody their opinion one day about something and then the next day they might have the exact opposite opinion. And both days they have, they're full of conviction. Uh, about both of their opinions we all do that we all we all should be able to change our mind and change our opinions on things but what's really important is to understand that when it comes to attunement or understanding people there you use the perspective taking as he calls it in the book that's a cognitive skill but you also allow empathy in there as well allow your emotions to kind of think well what's my gut feeling tell me here about this particular situation the third thing then the third principle that he talks about is mimic strategically and what mimic strategically means is that you are, and again, like I said at the beginning there, this is about rapport right now. If, you, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with rapport, if you want to influence somebody, if you want to persuade somebody, or if you want to sell something to somebody, one of the best things you can do to make them like you or to make them feel attuned to you, if you like, is to physically copy their movements. Now, that doesn't mean that you do it in some weird comical way, like every time they scratch their face, you scratch your face, or every time you know they make a gesture, you make it the same gesture. That just becomes odd and creepy. But if you do it almost at a distance, is what I would call it, in the book he calls it mimicking strategically, it can have a very, very powerful and profound effect. And you'll naturally find that you fall into that kind of rapport, that kind of um, mimicry, uh, as he calls it in the book. You'll fall into that with people that you are close to. Family members, your husband, your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friends who haven't seen each other in ages. Well, we've, all, we've all been in that situation where you meet up with a friend and you naturally fall into the, into your rhythm of speaking to each other and there's there's no there's no awkwardness you'll you'll find that you you're you'll speak at the same rate you'll use the same phrases uh you'll sit in the same way uh, you'll you'll naturally mimic each other's gestures so what they're talking about in this book and this is widely known in NLP as well in neurolinguistic programming is to build rapport or to mimic strategically and he says in the book that human beings are natural mimickers. We do it naturally, like I just said. So there are the three principles of uh, of attunement. But there's one extra thing that he, he talks about. Uh, it's called the ambivert advantage, right? Ambivert being being both an introvert and an extrovert. And he says that 
he gives a big whole speech about the extroverts are considered to be the best salespeople in the world. And the reason they're considered the best salespeople because they're outgoing, they're able to keep a conversation uh, alive and uh, they crack jokes and they're, they're, they don't take no for an answer. They're all kind of the characteristics of somebody who's an extrovert. And he says there's one teeny tiny problem is that there's absolutely no proof that extroverts are the best salespeople. Introverts can be just as good at selling, just as good at motivation, just as good as good as anyone at at influencing or persuasion or any of those things. So there's no set rule in place that somebody has to be an extrovert to be a decent salesperson or to be um, an influence. I was going to say an influencer, but that's what somebody on Instagram is. That's not what I mean by an influencer. Somebody who's good at persuading. Somebody who's good at influencing. So getting back to the the A B C. The A is for achievement. B is for buoyancy. And this particular chapter goes back to our famous Fuller Brushman, Norman Hall, from the very beginning of the book. And the author, Dan Pink, is again meeting up with him in San Francisco. And at the time that he is meeting the the Fuller Brushman, Norman Hall, and Norman Hall is on his way just to drop some products to some people who'd, who'd bought some brushes and cloths and whatever from him. And he arrives into the building and the people aren't there yet because he's there early. So he gets brought into the, the break room, which is like a common break room between a few different companies. And as he's sitting there talking to the author, a woman walks in and starts to make coffee. And Dan Pink, the author, and Norman Hall, the, the fuller brush salesman, they're having a conversation. But the woman has her back turned because she's making coffee. And Mr. Fuller Brushman himself puts up his hand as if like, just sorry, just give me a second here. And says to the lady, are, are, you, are you new in the office down the way there? And she says, uh, yeah, yeah, we are, yeah. Norman Hall, Fuller Brushman, he keeps talking. He says, oh, well, I've been calling on these two attorneys here that I'm, I'm dropping these products into for many, many years. And I was actually going to introduce myself to you. And I'm not sure if there's much interest. And, he's, and he gives a little bit of a sales pitch. And obviously the woman, she's just there to make coffee. She doesn't care. She goes, um, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, great. Uh, and he goes, I'm sure you've heard of the, the Fuller Brush. And she's like, um, yeah, and she's quite obviously uncomfortable at this stage. And the author, Dan Pink, is just is watching, basically watching a master at work. And it's become very clear that this has become a, a game of beat the clock, right? She's l- definitely going to leave when her coffee is made. So she's put the coffee into the filter thing and it's drip, drip, drip. And that's the whole point here. So, and the woman says, you know, actually, I, you know, I don't think we have any need and Norman Hall says, "Well, like you know, I don't like to, I don't like to press myself on people." And she says, um, "Okay, well, thank you." And he says, "I carry the home catalog, and then I do supplies for certain offices with uh, mirror cleaning items, uh, and that's why I'm here." And at this point, now the woman has turned around, and she's still, you know, not really that interested. And he keeps Norman Hall just keeps talking. And he explains that the lawyers have been customers of his for 15 years and uh, he, you know, they put a big order in the day before and now he's just here to drop that stuff off. And he tells her repeatedly that he's been working in the neighborhood for four decades. And he, re- he reiterates again, which I think is funny. He says, you know, I don't like to press. Uh, I'm not one of those pushy salespeople. I just have some products that you, you may or may not be interested in. They might be useful. They might not. And he says, look, I just, I just, I'd just, love a few minutes of your time. Um, I, I don't want to waste any of your time. Um, and now at this point, the coffee is done. And the woman who's just about to leave says, uh, well, I suppose, yeah, okay, look, drop by on your way out. And uh, he asks her name and she says her name and she leaves. And then 
Norman Hall, this is my favourite bit, he turns back around to Dan Pink, the author of the book, and says, that is how it starts. Which is, and it, there, there is no clearer example of, of, of what he's talking about in the book of this buoyancy than that. This idea that, I mean, most people wouldn't start a conversation with somebody who had their back to them, who's clearly just there to make coffee, is is not a prospect, has not been uh, talked, has not asked about the products in any particular way at all, hasn't even engaged. And yet Norman Hall just keeps talking and talking and get and he, he it's like he breaks through that that initial shield that we all have when somebody approaches and, and, and tries to sell. Now this Norman Hall guy, like I said at the, at the beginning of part one of this little mini series, he's been on it for forty years. And you cannot be do be a door-to-door sale. This buoyancy, unless you have this ability just to kind of nod and smile when people say, no thanks, it's not for me. You just, it's as if, it, it's as if she didn't say anything. And he just kind of goes, look, I don't like to press myself. It might not be for you. I have been doing this for four decades in the area. And I am, you know, he talks about his successes. And there's so much in there. There's such, there's such a rich tapestry of, of what he's woven there in that little conversation while she's waiting for her, waiting for her coffee to be made. And he doesn't, like, it's like anything, he doesn't want her to buy it right there and then. He just wants to get to the next stage. It's like your your CV or your resume for a job. You don't get the job based off your CV, which might sound like, well, yes you do. You don't. Your CV or your resume, whatever you call it, that gets you to the next stage. It gets you to the interview. That's what it's supposed to do. And that's what he's doing here with this, this sales process. And it could turn out that this woman who's making her coffee has absolutely no interest in his products. But at least he has a little sliver of light there, a little glimmer of hope that maybe, oh look, maybe he might sell her a cloth for $5 this particular day. He might come back next next month and sell her something for $100. And that's how it works. That's how persuasion works. It's not just to do with sales. What I'd love you to do is to think about the psychology behind this. Think about how we move people, how we put forward our case while maintaining that buoyancy that ability to, to take the, the punches to the face, the metaphorical punches to the face of people saying no, no thanks. And one of the worst things in sales is apathy, when people just don't care. They're not, they're not livid that you're talking to them. They're barely even listening to you. That's one of the worst things. And that's really where the buoyancy comes in, is being able to, to kind of move beyond that and just kind of be comfortable with the uncomfortableness, if you like. So that's the first thing he talks about when it comes to buoyancy is our hero, Norman Hall. The author, Dan Pink, then goes on to talk about what I think is a, is a, a so simple, but a hugely powerful way to talk to yourself. And he, he goes into a bit of the history of uh, motivational speakers, the guys all back in the days, like Anthony Robbins, who I'm a huge fan of, and, and you know, Jim Rohn, and, and a few, I can't remember all the names of the people he mentions, but he mentions all the ones you would probably have heard of, who talk about um, having positive affirmations. I can do this. I am the greatest salesperson in the world. I'm, I'm the greatest gift to whatever, insert whatever makes sense for you there. But then he brings it back to uh, a kid's program called Bob the Builder. Now, I don't know what part of the world you're listening to this in. But if I was to say to you, can we fix it? Do you know what the answer to that is? And if you have young kids or if you were watching this yourself, you know the answer to can we fix it is, yes, we can. But he uses that as a, as a very powerful example of the way we should talk to ourselves. And he calls it interrogative self-talk. A lot of the time people will, will, will go on about 
positive self-talk, which is very useful as well. But interrogative self-talk is much, much better. And that's why he uses Bob the Builder as an example. So can we fix it? Yes, we can. And ultimately, what the, the definition of this type of self-talk is, is to ask yourself questions. Say you're giving a presentation. You could, you could talk to yourself till you're blue in the face saying, I'm the greatest presenter the world has ever seen. This presentation is going to go absolutely brilliantly, which is all nice to have. And that kind of positive, positive thinking, is, it's, it's useful to a point. But what he talks about in this book, which is brilliant, is this interrogative self-talk. So rather than saying, I'm the greatest presenter in the world, if it's a presentation, for example, you would ask yourself a question. Can I do a great presentation? which is a much better way of putting it to yourself, of framing it for yourself, rather than just saying, I'm the greatest presenter in the world. Ask yourself, can I do a great presentation? And he says the reasons are twofold. And the first reason that he says that you're much better off asking to give a great presentation. Well, yeah, I can. And you start to answer that yourself, thinking, oh, yeah, I can, because I'm going to talk slowly, and I'm going to make sure my slides are clear. I'm going to make sure that I plant my feet. I'm going to make sure I've got a glass of water with me. I'm going to make sure I make eye contact. All those things start to, to swirl around in your head. So by asking yourself a, a good question, you're formulating the answer in your own mind. And the second reason, he says, is that this type of self-talk that interrogates yourself or interrogative self-talk he says that it may inspire thoughts about autonomous or intrinsically motivated reasons to pursue a goal. And he says that declarative self-talk, so just declaring things to be true, it can sometimes bypass your own motivations. Which is, and we're kind of, it's, it's getting very granular there, but it's actually worth pausing on for a second. Can I do a great presentation as part of that? Like I said, the first part is, well, by asking yourself that question, you begin to formulate the strategy for how you'll make, you'll, you'll actually do a great presentation. But the second thing, and this is hugely, hugely, hugely important, is that can I do a great presentation? It, it's like it fires up your intrinsic motivation, your, the, the motivation that comes from within your own, your own soul, if you like, for, for want of a better, better answer there. It's something that comes from within you. Can I do a great presentation? Yeah, I can, because this means something to me. And your, your motivations start to come to the surface then. So interrogative self-talk, write that one down. So that's what he said to do before the event, whatever it is. So if you're trying to be persuasive, if you're trying to sell something to somebody, if you're doing a presentation, you want to have a difficult conversation with a colleague, interrogative self-talk is to what you do beforehand. The second thing he says to do is during the event, whatever the event is, and he talks about positive ratios. And this is hugely important, especially if you're somebody who is in what they call inside sales, he says, if you're just making phone calls from inside an office, uh, you've got to make, you know, whatever amount of calls every day. He says, he says about having this, this positive ratio, and it's about making sure that you, you, you'll find your own level with this, but to make sure that you have enough easy calls mixed in with the, the tough ones. If you're just making, you know, horrible call after horrible call, whether it's, like I said, whether it's a presentation, whether it's a, uh, a difficult conversation with a colleague or an actual sales conversation, if you just, if you just stack up if you stack up all the hard ones to begin with, all the ones that I don't know how this is going to go, that's going to it's going to affect it's going to affect you when you get to the actual, the you know the easy ones, the ones that are almost over the line kind of thing. So what he talks about is finding your own ratio with positive to negative, or the the easy ones to the 
to the more difficult ones. And he talks again about our hero, Norman Norman Hall, the, the Fuller Brushman. And he says that he follows him around for a day and he, he sometimes he comes out of an office mumbling under his breath about how rude some people can be. But he mixes that in with, with going into companies where he's embraced like an old friend. Like, ah, oh, Norman, how are you? Come on in. That kind of thing, you know, and there's handshakes and hugs and all that kind of stuff. So Norman Hall naturally mixes his his difficult ones, like his cold calling, if you like, with the ones that are that are nice and toasty and warm, if you like. So that's that's what a good thing to keep in mind when you are, like I said, doing a presentation. If it is a presentation that you have to do and you have to be uh, influencing people or trying to get people to make a decision, maybe there's like a low risk version of that you could do beforehand. And it could be just anything at all to get yourself into a positive frame of mind, which he actually says in the book, people cannot roll their eyes hard enough when, when people talk about um, positivity and stuff. And then he talks, the last thing to do, so after this, this is, we're still talking about buoyancy now, but he says what to do afterwards to keep yourself buoyant is have an explanatory style. So this explanatory style is about, again, it's about self-talk, but it's about how you explain situations to yourself. And I don't know if it's in this book or it could be in uh, something else I read, but it's it's to do with like top golfers is what I had heard before. So I'm kind of... I'm away from the book at the moment, but it actually fits in to what they talk about in the book, this explanatory style. If you imagine, say, let's say a footballer, right, a soccer player who uh, never misses penalties, and they step up to take a penalty and they miss or keeper saves it or whatever, there's some immediate self-talk that happens in that player's head who missed the penalty. Because this player generally scores their penalties, when they miss... They just explain the way, going, oh, well, I must have, you know, I must have just not connected with the ball right, or um, maybe the keeper has watched too many of my videos of, of me taking penalties or something. They'll have some way to explain it that still allows their own vision of themselves to remain intact. Whereas somebody who always misses penalties probably has the exact opposite thought process in their head or their exact opposite way to explain it themselves. They're running up to take a penalty and they think, you know what, I never get these fucking penalties. I'm always missing these penalties. And then they miss and uh, they go, yep, see, I knew it. And even if that person does score, they go, that's probably a fluke, you know, I, I never usually get them. So it's all about how you explain it to yourself as well. And in the book, he mentions the phrase learned helplessness, right? People go, oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'll actually just, I'm just thinking of something there. Um, my own children, right? I've got three kids. The youngest one, uh, boy, he's uh, one and a half he's in danger of learning that helplessness, right? That kind of, <laughs> when he wants something that is within two feet of him and he's looking at you with those, that frown, <laughs> and I get it yourself. And the reason that he has that helplessness is because he's got two older sisters who get him everything that he wants. All he has to do is sit in the middle of the floor and things are handed to him because he is the baby, the family. And that's, it's an, it's an interesting way to, 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 to see it in its raw, <laughs> in its raw form in, a, in the field, as it were. But we all are capable of this. We're all capable of this explanatory talk that we do to ourselves or this explanatory self-talk where if it's a sales pitch that you're doing or it's a presentation, what do you say to yourself afterwards as to why it went well or why it went badly? And again, back to Norman Hall, he says that Norman Hall has an optimistic explanatory style. When he's rejected, as he was several times during the sales call on which I joined him, that's him being, I being the, uh, the, the author, he explained the rejections is temporary, specific, or external. 
So he doesn't, it's not like he's wearing rose-colored, rose-tinted glasses the whole time uh, going into sales and kind of just being oblivious to, to the reality of the situation. But he always has a way to explain it that they might have said no or they might have, said, they might have definitely said no this time or, or they were 100% not interested this time. But in his head, he explains it in a way, yeah, that's, they, say, they say definitely no way ever, but nah, they don't really mean that. And the end of this chapter finishes with <laughs> what I like to call our hero, because he is a hero, Norman Hall, the, the Fuller Brushman. Uh, he ends up back in Beth's office, so he's, he's delivered some more stuff in, to people in that office. And uh, he goes up to see Beth, who's the woman making the coffee from earlier on. And uh, he has an appointment at 11 o'clock, and he doesn't come back down to almost 11.30. And Dan Pink, the author, says, you know, well, did she, <laughs> you know, did she buy anything? And he shakes his head. No, no sale. And he said they walk in silence for maybe eight steps. And the last Fuller Brush man in San Francisco turns to me and says, but I think there's going to be a chance to get her the next time. Now, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about persuasion, influence, sales, moving people, then there's nothing more I can do for you. The very last thing that we'll talk about then is clarity. Is to have clarity when it comes to moving people. The ABC. A is attunement, B is buoyancy, and C is clarity. And in this particular chapter, he talks about one of the things that's, it's actually one of my, one of my probably one of my favorite things I've read about, about sales, about persuasion, about uh, influence that I've ever read, I've ever encountered. And he talks about finding the right problems to solve. And he gives an example. I think I might've mentioned this in the, the last episode as well. I might be wrong. But he talks about um, the people who sell Mentos, mints, right the you know the 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 chewy mints that you buy the sweets right candy as they say in america and he says so he he does an interview with the the ceo or the vice president of sales of the the company that makes them and he says what he's seen is that the he they've seen a shift in what retailers are looking for everyone is just dog tired of salespeople coming in the front door and trying to push their product push their product and push their product those people who are looking who are just basically just closers like uh, like Alec Baldwin and, and Glengarry Glen Ross he says what they're, they're not that's not what they're looking for what they're really looking for is unbiased business partners so that's how they train their sales staff they're not looking for how many packets of mentos chewy mints am I supposed to buy from you they're looking to see how can I improve overall sales. So as part of their process for approaching these these corner shops or these uh, these these shop owners, is to be like an expert in their field. So it might involve saying, you know what, you should have five flavors of our Mentos rather than seven, and it'll always involve making sure that they are uh, buying their competitors as well, because then. You know, once once that type of salesperson approaches you, you know that they're not going to go for the hard sale. And the way that you know they're not going to go for the hard sale is because they're recommending their own competitors to you. you. Go well. That's that's interesting. That's an unbiased business partner, and that's what you're looking for, ultimately. So, and the last thing he talks about, and I I I, I kind of want to just there's a few other bits actually that he talks about. Now there's a bit more to that mental story, which I won't get into. I'd, lo- I'd love you to read the book, to be honest. Um, but it, it's it's a it's a great example of what sales should be. It should be about offering solutions, even if in the short term, that solution doesn't involve your product or service. So keep that in mind if you are in, in literal sales, that offering, playing the long, the long game sometimes is the best way of doing it. And then he talks about finding your frames. 
and he talks about and here's um here's a little little snippet for you for um for if you ever in like a whether well, this must be a, a very random table quiz or very very specific niche table quiz if you ever wanted to know who coined the term unique selling proposition or usp it was Rosser Reeves, right? Rosser Reeves was an American advertising executive from the middle of the 20th century, and that's what he was uh, credited with coming up with the term, the unique selling proposition. Anyway, he talks about, um, he's also credited with one of the, the most famous stories in advertising. The author talks about uh, when this guy, Rosser Reeves, and a colleague, they're having lunch in Central Park in America, and on the way back to their Madison Avenue office, ooh, fancy, they encountered a man sitting in the park begging for money and his sign said, I am blind. And unfortunately, the man only had a few coins in, uh, in, in his cup. And Reeves had the idea that I bet you I can, I can dr- dramatically increase the amount of money the guy is, is raising just by adding four words to a sign. So this guy is blind. All the sign says is, I am blind. And this guy, Rosser Reeves, his genius is going to add some more words. And what four words did he add? He added, it's springtime and I am blind. And that's it. And he won his bet. won his bet with his colleague. And this is the first frame that they talk about. I'm not going to get into all the frames because there's loads of them and they're, they're definitely worth a read. This is a way to frame something and it's based on a, a principle by another guy um, who was a great book called Influence, the, the Psychology of Persuasion, by uh, Robert Cialdini is his name. And it's called the Contrast Principle. So the most essential question somebody can ask is, compared to what? So by this guy, Rosser Reeves, saying it's springtime and I'm blind, what that does is it's almost like it reminds people to compare their reality with the blind homeless guy. So the comparison is is pretty stark when it's, you know, I'm enjoying the nice springtime weather, but this guy is blind. Oh, I'll give him a few dollars. That's the idea behind that. Again, another great book. Uh, we're actually turning it into a course as well. Um, Robert Cialdini's book um, about influence. It's one of the best books, Six Principles of Persuasion. It's fantastic. So there's other there's other frames that he talks about. Um, the, the less frame, the experience frame, the label frame, the blemished frame. These are all different ways to get people to think about how they would reframe something in somebody's mind and to give it just that idea there or the an example of the contrast principle that just reframes the way people looked at that sign so the sign says i am blind and to reframe that for somebody in you really you're, you're getting into psychology there in, the, in a big way then but you're reframing it for somebody by comparing to what they have i'm enjoying the nice springtime weather but this guy is blind like i said and that's that's a reframing other than just saying this guy is blind. And that pretty much brings us to the end of, of part two of this three-part mini-series about Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human. In our third and final part of this series, we're going to talk about what to do, right? So already we've talked about the rebirth of a salesman or a salesperson, um, how we're all in sales and how entrepreneurship and uh, is important these days. And then we talked about how all marketplaces have basically changed from caveat emptor to caveat vendator, from buyer beware to seller beware, because we all have information parity now. And in the third part, what we're going to talk about is the pitch, right? That sales pitch, that elevator pitch. 
but I think it gives, I don't know, seven or eight different types of pitches that you can use, the Pixar pitch, and loads of different ways to frame the story of your product or your service, or whatever it is that you need somebody to do. So this, remember, this isn't just about sales for sales sake. It's about influence and persuasion and being in the moving game. So he talks about pitching. He talks about improvisation, right? Improv. If you've ever uh, been to improv, you know how, how talented those people are. And then how you actually are ultimately about trying to serve people. It should be, if you're in sales, if you're in the, the business of moving people, of, of influencing people, it should be about serving people ultimately so until next time thanks very much for tuning in very much appreciated please do follow us on twitter on instagram tell everyone this this podcast has already started to uh, to get quite big and um, bigger than i thought it would so i'm i'm quite happy about that obviously but um i want more people to hear i want you to tell me as well what you'd like to hear recommend books to us tell us what you want us to talk about and uh, I'll, I'll do my best to do that so until next time 